So last week, we looked at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and at the beginning of the sermon, uh, Jason spent some of his time talking about verse 7. In verse 7, the beginning of verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. And, and what Jason talked about is how this affects the way that we live. Jason said, uh, our vision of the future impacts the way that we live in the present. And he said that difficulty in the present can cloud our vision of the future, and so a clear vision of our hope empowers us to live differently today. So the end of all things is near means Christ's return is certain and it's imminent because everything that's been accomplished, excuse me, everything that must be accomplished in order for Christ to return, it's been accomplished. So Jesus can return at any time. And since these things are true, this mindset we have, this governs the way that we think and how we live in this world. So what do we do? If you remember back to last week, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We strive to look like Jesus so we can what? So that we can point others to Jesus. So because our future hope is in Christ, we live differently today. We live differently from the world around us. We treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we treat each other different. We treat the people around us that don't know Christ, our neighbors, our colleagues, teammates, the guy at the shop, our friends, our family, uh, family members that don't know Christ, we treat them differently as well if we're striving to look like Christ. So if we're striving to look like Christ, our behavior is different and that makes us stand out. It makes us look different from the people around us. And one of the things, one of the things that, that, happens, that happens there is that it draws attention to us. And sometimes the attention that's drawn to us, sometimes it's positive because we're pointing others to Christ, right? That's a positive thing, that's good. But sometimes the attention that we attract by living differently, sometimes that attention is negative. So we all went to primary school, right? So we know how being different plays out because little kids are vicious, right? Little kids are vicious. At least that's how it can feel when you're another little kid at primary school. So throw any child into a primary school with anything that differentiates them from the norm and we know what happens. Because little kids are really good at spotting differences, but they haven't always developed enough in their social skills and their social awareness to understand that different is okay. So this hypothetical kid that we're talking about, if he talks different, if he has a different accent, or uh, if he has a different kind of haircut, or maybe he wears a different kind of clothes, some of you in here, your kids have been treated differently because they have a different color of skin. But if there's anything that differentiates this, this child in this primary school, it's like throwing raw meat into shark-infested waters, right? So because, and, and we know, we know this because we all went to primary school. We also know that, that this doesn't end 
after primary school. We've experienced this in secondary school. We've experienced it in university. We've experienced it at our jobs. We've experienced it maybe in our estate. We've experienced it on the pitch, hanging out with friends, at family gatherings. We, meaning everybody in this room, know that we, meaning humans, don't always react good to other people that are different. And if you are a follower of Christ, you know this as well. We, meaning Christians, know that non-Christians, because they're people, don't always react well to people that are different, to people that behave different. So I think you may have experienced this as well if you, if you are a follower of Christ. So you, sometimes the way that you live differently generates curiosity. Somebody might say to you, why do you do that? Sometimes it generates disbelief. Hold on, you don't do whatever it is. Sometimes it generates anger. Some of you in this room have had someone say to you, maybe a friend or a family member, do you think that you're better than I am? Or maybe you've been called a name, intolerant, a goody two-shoes, a hypocrite, Maybe you face pressure to do something that you oughtn't do. Now, how does this make you feel? When you're singled out as being different, how do you feel? Does it make you feel happy or does it make you feel sad? Are you encouraged or are you discouraged? Are you uplifted or are you downtrodden? If it's been going on for a while, this, this treatment of you, do you feel like you don't know how much longer you can hold out? See, when you're pressured to give in, to do something that you don't want to do, you can hold out for a while just out of being stubborn. But pressure takes a toll. Maybe you've been pressured to do something, to compromise for so long that you're close to giving in. And maybe you want to give in, not because you're tempted to do whatever it is, but because you're tired of hearing about it. It's annoying to hear about the same thing all the time. And if you give in, you won't have to hear about it anymore. So if we're striving to look like Christ because we trust God and we trust that God is good and we trust the way that he asks us to conduct ourselves as good, and we are doing good, we will look different. And because we look different, we draw attention to ourselves. Again, sometimes it's good. People are curious, they want to know, and we're pointing them to Christ. But sometimes the attention that we draw to ourselves is negative, and that's bad, right? Is it? Is it actually bad? In the passage that we just looked at in verse 14, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. What's up with that? That's, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, Peter wrote this letter to Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering, that they're enduring some sort of persecution for their faith, and it's because they look different from the society around them. And like us, maybe like you, they look different because the way they live their lives is different. So Peter writes this letter to encourage these fellow believers 
Being different and suffering for it is hard. Being different because you're honoring God in the way that you live and suffering for it is hard. And so Peter writes to encourage them to continue in their obedience to God. Trust that God is good. Continue to do what is good. So how about you? If you're here today and you're a Christian, do you trust that God is good? Do you trust that the way he asks you to live is good? Do you do it? Do you suffer for it? Are you in need of encouragement? Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, but you're not living the way that God asks you to do, or excuse me, the way that God asks you, asks you to, I hope that you find some inspiration in this passage to put towards changing the way that you live. And if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, this isn't really for you because this is written to the persecuted church. But while it's not for you specifically, I think there's something still that you can get out of the text that we're looking at today. So let's look at the text. So Peter starts out, he starts out and and in, in this section he says, beloved or beloved. And another way for us to understand this word is friends or dear friends or maybe even the passage that Parag read uh, earlier, uh, my little children. This is like, uh, this is an endearing term. And, uh, and, and dear friends is what Peter has in mind. And he says this because this is a letter of encouragement. So if you want to do a comparison and contrast, think of Paul who writes, you foolish Galatians, right? But this is not that. This is a letter of encouragement of consolation, Peter is coming alongside these believers to encourage them. And he's coming on alongside to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them to continue in their walk with the Lord, and especially right now in this time that is so difficult because of this fiery trial. Now, the fiery trial, this is something Peter has mentioned before, and really I just might add here Um, I don't think there's anything that we're talking about today that hasn't already been mentioned in this letter. So we're not covering any new ground here, um, but Peter's bringing it all together uh, like, well, I would call it a synthesis, but he's synthesizing all this information that he's talked about in this letter, and he's bringing it all together to say something encouraging and to, to get to the point. So the fiery trial, he's mentioned it before. Uh, if you flip back to the beginning um, in 1, 6, and 7, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this uh, precious gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, in these various trials, what Peter's talking about here is a crucible. And a crucible is used to refine precious metals. The, the metal is heated in the crucible. It melts, and the impurities are removed. And this is the fiery trial that Peter's talking about. Um, and you'll note here also in verse 12 that this test, this trial, it has a, it has a purpose, and it's a test. 
And what is the test? Look back again at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Uh, it's at the end of verse 7. Nope, it's at the beginning of verse 7. Uh, but this is to test your faith to see if it's genuine. This is a test for the genuineness of your faith. And that's why, that's why God allows these things to happen in our lives, to test our faith, to see if it's true. Now, he tells us not to be surprised, or he tells these believers not to be surprised. And it's interesting, um, it's in, it, it, or it's thinking about surprise, I, th- I thought this was an interesting, I don't know, thought experiment this week as I was preparing. Uh, but surprise has, uh, I, f- I found two things that I was thinking about surprise and what that means. So surprise has to do with expectations and what it is that you're expecting and does that line up with what actually happens. So when my expectations don't line up with the way the world really works, I end up in disappointment. This is particularly true if my expectations are unrealistic or impossible or not likely. So a warning from Peter that suffering is to be expected helps to be prepared for what's coming. Now, surprise can also be affected by my view of God and how God interacts with me. So, if my views of God are poor, or if I have some poor theology about who God is and the way that he works, and we all have poor theology, none of us has perfect theology, this is why we study the word so that we can see who God is and we can know him, how he, how he wants us to be known. So, if my views of God are based on poor theology, I might expect that if I honor God in my life and the way that I live, that God will honor me in return. And oftentimes, you know, we might think about this um, as like a material blessing or a blessing in a relationship or a blessing in, in your work or in your sports or the blessing of an easy life. But this is wrong. This isn't what Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us to expect trouble. And in, case, and in case we all missed that, or in case these believers missed what Jesus said, he's telling them right here, don't be surprised, this is coming. And in case we missed it in our lives, what Jesus said, now we know as we're reading this letter that Peter wrote. So if we miss this, when we do face suffering, we can feel like God has abandoned us. So it's important that we, one, expect suffering because that's what we're told to expect, and two, to seek to understand who God is through what he tells us about himself in Scripture. How does God describe himself? Not, what do I want God to be like? Or how do I want God to treat me? But what, is, what does he say about himself in his word? So uh, about suffering... Uh, and misfortune. There's a, a, a great quote here uh, from Karen Jobes. This is the commentary a lot of us are using, so you've heard a few things from her uh, over the last few months. Um, she says, uh, misfortune and death are certainly normal in the sense that they are universally experienced. So we all experience suffering, so that's normal. See, we live in a fallen world, so we should expect fallen world things to happen, right? Shouldn't we expect suffering anyways? So, you know, shouldn't Peter not have to tell us, don't be surprised? 
Well, anyways, misfortune and death are certainly normal in the sense that they're universally experienced, but they're not normal when viewed from God's intention in creation and his plan in redemption. And so, and we're in the middle. Creation was at the beginning, redemption is all the way at the end. And we live here now. So the idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering, despite universal suffering and death, remains a lingering echo of life in Eden as God created it before the fall. And it is also a longing for the time when there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, and no more death. So, some, so we expect these things, and partly it's unrealistic because we know the world that we live in, but partly we expect them because it is realistic, because that's what God has promised. And that's the living hope that we've been talking about in this series. That if you look back at 1, 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the hope, this future hope. And so uh, sometimes we talk about uh, the already and the not yet. And so like we've already been saved because Jesus already died and paid for our sins, but we haven't been saved yet because we haven't died yet and we haven't gone to heaven. And so this is another already and not yet type of a situation where there's uh, a paradox or like uh, a tension that we exist in. So don't be surprised, don't be surprised. And this, this uh, not being surprised or this expectation, this isn't passive acceptance of what's gonna happen to you and it isn't morbid fatalism. And it isn't a cynical acceptance. Well, what else did you expect? What Peter encourages is preparedness, to be ready. And we've seen this before. If you look in 1.13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. In 4.7 that we looked at last week, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. So, why? So that when suffering comes, we're ready. We're not caught off guard and we're prepared to stand firm. So, rather than being surprised, we're meant to be ready, and we're meant to rejoice. In verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So rather than being surprised when we encounter the, tri the trial, we're to rejoice because we're experiencing suffering the same as Jesus experienced it. Looking in 2.21, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Remember, we are following in Christ's footsteps. We're following his example. And in 4.1, we see that Christ did suffer. Christ suffered in the flesh. So arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. And now here it is. We rejoice when we finally experience this. We've been warned we're, we're meant to follow Jesus. We're meant to follow in his steps. And so when you do that, you do encounter suffering. 
And following in his footsteps is also proof that we belong to him, that we belong to Christ. So, we rejoice now while suffering because our future hope, our hope where there is no more death and tears and pain and sorrow, our hope is in Christ and we're looking to the future because our view of the future affects how we live now, right? So that we can trust that God is good and that we can continue to do what is good. And why is it that we rejoice? Why are we glad when Christ's glory is going to be revealed in the end? Uh, Peter expands on that in verse 14. See, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, this is that weird one, that weird one that I mentioned earlier, right? When, uh, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Okay. Well, the suffering isn't the blessing. So when I was a kid and I had to mow the lawn and it was 35 degrees outside and I didn't want to do it because it took two hours and I thought I was going to die from dehydration sickness, one of the things my dad might have said to me is, ah, well, that just builds character. It's like, well, I would rather not have any character if this is what I got to do. Okay, suffering does build character, right? I I think we know that because we probably, most of us had dads that said that to us. Um, But that's not what Peter has in mind here. The suffering isn't the blessing. The blessing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit that we have The Holy Spirit that comes to us when we put our faith in Christ, it's the same Spirit that rests on Jesus. So we follow in Jesus' footsteps and we share in his suffering, but we also share in having the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God that rests on us. So, the reason that we rejoice is not because we're suffering, it's because the suffering is evidence that we belong to Jesus. Belonging to Jesus, that is what the blessing is. And so now in 15, we have a little bit of a comparison that we can consider. Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or even as a meddler, but if anyone suffers suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter, uh, this again is something that Peter's written about earlier in the letter. If we look at uh, 3.17, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And here, uh, Peter calls us to consider our suffering. Are we suffering for Christ? Or are we suffering for maybe something else? You know, if if you're suffering as a, a, uh, what did he say, a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler getting in other people's business, uh, that, that's more like you made a mess, and now you got to deal with it. you got to clean it up. Uh, that's not suffering as a Christian. It's suffering, but that's, that's, not, that's not what we're going for. Um, and so, 
if I experience suffering, though, because of my obedience to God, he says, do not be ashamed. Uh, and it's not like uh, an embarrassed kind of ashamed. It's, it's, this isn't something that's shameful. This isn't a shameful thing to, uh, to be insulted for the name of Christ. It's honorable. And because it's honorable, we can give glory to God. So the old joke, there's the old joke that goes, that the, you know, the man, uh, he goes into the doctor and he says, doctor, uh, I've got this problem. It hurts when I push here. 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 I don't know what's going on. And the doctor says, well, sir, you have a broken finger. And so his advice is, oh, is that hurting? Well, then stop doing it. Okay? And uh, that's normally what we do when something causes pain. So if living as a Christian leads to my suffering, what am I supposed to do about that? Oh, well, if it's causing you pain, you might as well just go ahead and stop that. But that is not what we do. Here, we live as a Christian. We suffer because of this, and then we continue to live as a Christian. We trust that God is good, and then we continue to do what is good. And this glorifies God through our lives. It gives evidence of our salvation, and it's a testimony to those around us. If living this way causes you suffering, why do you continue to live this way? And then Peter says in 3.15, we can always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. So we trust God so that we can do good. We don't stop just because of the pain. Now, the second thing that Peter talks about is judgment. Always an exciting topic. He says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So judgment here, like we, we you know, we kind of think of like, oh, don't judge me. We think of judgment usually as condemnation, but there's another way that we also use judgment, and uh, we use judgment as like the action of a judge, what a judge does. Um, and, and another way to put this would be discernment. So judgment does not refer to condemnation, but discernment. It's the same way uh, Jesus in Matthew 25 31, he talks about uh, at the judgment before the great white throne uh, that, that God will separate the people like a shepherd sep separates the sheep from the goats. So it's that kind of discernment, that kind of separation that Peter has in mind here. And so the fiery trial that God allows in our lives that we should be expecting and not surprised by, God allows it to test our faith to see that it's genuine. True Christians endure the fiery trial. And again, this isn't something new that Peter's talking about. Back in uh, verse 223, we see at the end of the verse, we see that God judges justly. And so Peter's already been talking about judgment and bringing that into our minds as we read this letter. Um, and now, now we see where he's going, where he's going with this. Um, and, and he says, uh, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and that's kind of a weird, maybe a weird statement, like what does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, simply put uh, in this letter, Peter has a characterization where obedience to the gospel is the identification of a Christian, a follower of Christ, and disobedience of the gospel 
or disobedience in general uh, is the characterization of those who are not saved. Um, And if you look through uh, other parts of the letter, you'll see that. But that's what that means. So uh, if judgment, if discernment, if this discernment, this trial that is a discernment, if that's how it is with us, what's going to happen to the people who aren't saved, that don't know God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And scarcely here doesn't mean, you know, God was barely able to do it. It, it, Another way to look at this word would be with difficulty. And so with difficulty, if we are only saved through difficulty, what will this mean? And this, this would be like when Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate, that, uh, that the, the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And the, those who find it are few. And so this is what Peter has in mind. So the argument that he's putting out here in these two verses is that if we Christians are discerned through the testing of our faith by the trials in life, how much worse will judgment and condemnation be for those in death who rejected Christ in life? The implication being a lot worse. So, if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're a complacent Christian, I said earlier there's something in here for you. Well, this is it. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, what this does is it brings to your mind the reality of judgment. I am a huge procrastinator. Famously, I'm a famous procrastinator. I would rather do anything at all than the work that I'm supposed to be doing right now. Well, not this, but at the time that I'm supposed to be doing it. Uh, There's somebody else here that's also a big procrastinator, and sometimes we like to have a little bit of uh, witty banter about our procrastinating, and and many of you know Zoe Post, um, and Zoe also is a huge procrastinator, and we were laughing about it uh, this week because we we were talking about, because she's studying for her junior cert, and we were talking about this, uh, and she's like, oh yeah, you know, I was supposed to study, and so I cleared off my desk, and I, and I had to dust it, and I was like, I do the same thing. When I have to get down to do real serious work, the first, last thing that I do before I work is I take all the stuff off of my desk, and I wipe it down. You know, anybody would want to do that. Well, probably anybody would want to just get the work out of the way. Um, now, uh, are, you a, are you a procrastinating Christian, or are you a procrastinator, though, when it comes to spiritual things and the, spirit, and the condition of your heart, I would really encourage you to not do that. This is like if there's an area in your life that you don't want to procrastinate, that you don't want to uh, put things off, this is it. Because this judgment that we're talking about, this is the final judgment. This is, this is part of the final judgment, the final discernment, the separating before the throne, and it started now. It started now. That means Jesus is coming soon because the end has already begun. So, therefore, verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. Therefore, therefore, because judgment is here now, because suffering is a sign you belong to Christ, because you share in Christ's sufferings, because you're insulted for the name of Christ, because you choose suffering rather than evil, because you endure the fiery trial, because the end of all things is near, because of all these things, you who suffer truly as a Christian, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Again, look back at verse 2, 23. Speaking of Jesus, Peter writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So again here, part of us following in Jesus' footsteps, which is what God has called us to do. So it says, let those of you who suffer according to God's will. 2.21, for to this you have been called. So Peter has already told us, uh, and, and we already talked about earlier even, that part of our calling as Christian, as, as Christians, as believers, is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So we follow him uh, in doing good, we follow him in suffering, and we follow him in entrusting our souls to God. So you give up your life to Christ. You give up your life to God as a suffering Christian. You entrust your whole being to God, and not to just, and it's not just a God. It's the one true God, the God who created earth and everything in it. He's the creator, and the God who, and because he's the creator, he's the God who's sovereign over all things, over all circumstances. And this is God who loves you and who is faithful. So, as I was doing my uh, preparation, I, this verse 19, I kept, I was thinking it was a bit of an odd statement. And the reason, and I, I didn't get there right away, it took me a little bit to get there, but um, a Christian who is suffering for the way that he's living because he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, because he's trying to look like Jesus, so he's living in a way that's honoring and obedient to God already. He's already entrusted his soul, or her, this person has already entrusted their soul to God, otherwise they wouldn't be in this circumstance, right? They wouldn't be in this trial. These Christians are already obedient to the gospel of God. Look back at the greeting in, uh, of the letter in verses 1 and 2. Uh, Peter writes, to those who are elect exiles in, we'll just say Asia Minor, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So they're already being sanctified. They're already obedient. Um, and in verse 14 uh, of chapter 1, uh, Peter refers to them as obedient children. So why does Peter write this to them? Why is he telling them to do what it looks like they're already doing? Well, I think it's to encourage them. It's to encourage them to endure, to encourage them that what they're doing, it's what they're supposed to be doing, and to continue doing it. And we need this kind of encouragement, don't we? when it's a trial, a fiery trial. Karen Jobes again. She says, all too often when believers suffer and face hard times, 
I question where God is. Have I displeased God? Has God left me to my own resources? Is my suffering a sign of God's disfavor or even of God's anger? And although the human heart naturally tends to view suffering in that way, Peter's teaching corrects his reader's understanding of their experience. Suffering that comes because I'm living for Christ should not be a surprise. Jesus' suffering, his own suffering, normalized and dignified suffering. And the spirit of glory and of God that rests upon me when I suffer, uh, uh, it rests upon me when I suffer rather than sin. For it is only by the power of the spirit that you might find the resolve and strength to live an uncompromising life in a society that is hostile to your convictions and your values. Your willingness to suffer rather than compromise indicates the inner transformation of the sanctifying work of the Spirit and that you have been set apart as a living stone in the spiritual house of God. See, God hasn't abandoned the Christian who suffers. The opposite of that, God is powerfully present in the experience of the suffering Christian. See, we need this encouragement. We need to know that we're not alone, and we need to know that God is with us. I got one more story for you. I worked with this guy, we're gonna call him Robbie, mostly because that's his name. So I worked with this guy, Robbie, and he like, just out of nowhere, uh, he got into running. And he just was running, 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 running. He's running 5Ks, running 10Ks, running a marathon. And then he comes in one day and he's just like walking through the hall like this. Like, Robbie, you know, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, I ran, uh, a, you know, 50 kilometers uh, over the weekend barefoot. What? Why would you do that? Why would you do that, Robbie? And he just, he decided that he liked running so much he was going to get into, uh, Oh, what are they called? These uh, like long uh, ultra marathons. They're called ultra marathons. And an ultra marathon, uh, like a normal marathon, which isn't apparently long enough, is like 42 and some change kilometers. And an ultra marathon is like 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, 160 kilometers, or something even dumber than that. But what Robbie started doing is when you go on these ultra marathons, especially when you get into like the 100 kilometer range, uh, you're allowed to have uh, a companion when you get to a certain point in the race. And so he started to be a companion while he was working his way up and working up his endurance to where he would be able to run a full 100 kilometers on his own. He started to be a companion. And so he would, uh, he, he would meet someone partway through the race, and he, you know, he couldn't run the race for them, uh, and, you know, but, but, but he could, you know, he had a little backpack and he had, you know, some of the, you know, he knew what snacks they liked or whatever. And so he'd have these in his backpack um, and he would run alongside them and encourage them. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Get ready for this next part. It's steep. Oh, yeah, because this was like in the mountains in Colorado. So we're talking like 3,000 meters elevation, you know, anyway. I don't even want to drive 100 kilometers right now after COVID. That just seems like too much. And, but, but so Robbie's going along to encourage these people and to spur them on to finish the race. That's what Peter's doing. And what was really interesting, as I was remembering, recalling the story about Robbie, like the first time he did this, he didn't even know the person that he went to help. 
it was, he just, he, I was like, well, how did, how did you find this person? Like, well, I just, you know, I was in the forums or whatever, the discussion group online, and I saw that she didn't have uh, a, a helper. And I was like, oh, well, I can do that. So Peter, though, Peter, he most likely doesn't know these Christians that he's written this letter to. He might know someone that knows them, but he doesn't know them personally. Uh, the, reason, the reason I say this is, he, well, he doesn't greet anybody by name. Uh, he doesn't write to a specific group in a specific area or a specific, you know, a specific church. He's writing to Christians spread across a huge region. So it seems that Peter somehow has heard about the suffering of these Christians, and he's been burdened to write to them, to encourage them in their faith, in their trials. Like a runner, like Robbie, coming to run alongside this endurance runner, Peter has come alongside, he's running with them, he's encouraging them and spurring them on. And some of us, we need encouragement too, because we're in this trial right now. Some of you are in this trial. And we certainly find encouragement in this letter that Peter wrote to these anonymous believers 2,000 years ago. And uh, certainly we can take a lesson from the life of Peter. You know, consider who Peter is. You know, Peter who denied Christ. He denied that he was a disciple of Christ and then denied that he even knew Jesus. He knows what it's like to face pressure to be unfaithful. And so he comes alongside these people, even though he doesn't know them, to encourage them. So we, we can take encourage, we can take, a, take that as an example, you know, to come alongside each other, to encourage one another. But the main thing here is that if you, if you need encouragement right now, because of the trial in your life. You can find that right now here. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel alone, abandoned, lost in your trial, lost in your suffering. Know that you aren't alone. God has not abandoned you. Trust that God is good and continue to do what is good. If you feel that you've been singled out because of your faith, be strong. Be ready so you can continue in your walk. Be prepared so you can stand firm. If you feel like some of you maybe do, if you feel that you can't hold on much longer, that you're about to give in to whatever the pressure is, remain faithful. Remain obedient to God. Seek God. Remember, this trial is account, on account of your faithfulness. Find joy in the future hope that you have in Christ. If you feel downtrodden this morning because you are suffering unjustly because of your faithfulness to Christ, know that you are following in Jesus' footsteps as you've been called to do. Jesus, your big brother, your spiritual big brother, he knows what you're going through because he went through it himself. He suffered injustice, and he loves you. The Holy Spirit that you have is the same spirit that came to Jesus. So if you feel pressure, nearly overwhelming pressure to conform, to give in to the world around you, pressure from your friends, pressure from your family, be strong in this test of your faith.
trust that God is good. Continue to do what is good. And know that this test, this judgment, means the end of all things is near. Jesus is coming soon. Your hope in Christ will be fulfilled. You have brothers and sisters here who love you and who will come alongside you. But more than that, you're not alone because God is with you. Trust God. Continue to do what's good. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to read, uh, read from Psalm 43. And... Man, 40, Psalm 42 and 43, it's, I don't know. I was, in a, I was in a really dark time, and this, it just really helped me out. And so I just, personally, I really like these, these two psalms. Um, and uh, and I, I remember I prayed through them so many times. And the, the, hope, the hope that's here is that we can ask God, we can ask God to, to, to come to us. I mean, like, he's already here. We know that. But, like, we can ask God to, you know, that we can feel his presence and that he can draw us to him so that we can worship him again. So let's pray. So, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you there with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Lord, um, we come to you and we pray, uh, we, ask, we ask you to, to encourage us, um, and we pray, uh, as it says here, that as, as the deer pants for the, for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, and that my soul thirsts for you, because you're the living God. God, made those words be true in our lives. God, I pray that you would, um, that you would move in your Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts, that you would encourage us uh, to be faithful and to persevere. Lord, for those of us that aren't currently maybe in a trial, Lord, uh, give us um, give us wisdom to notice what's going on around us and the people in the lives of the people that we love and our brothers and sisters here at the church um, and help us to speak in with wisdom and love into people's lives to encourage them. And God, for those of us here that are going through the trial right now, Lord, I lift them up and I pray, Lord, that you would bring them peace, that you would bring them encouragement and that you would remind them of the hope, Lord, that they have in you. And that they would look forward to that day when we'll be with you and there will be no more tears and pain and suffering and sorrow. God, we love you. Teach us to, teach us to love you more. Teach us to know you more. Amen.